I Am The Law is brought to you by Blueprint LSAT Test Prep, which reports an average score increase of 15 points. With the first AI-powered QBank, fun videos, personalized study plans, and engaging 98th percentile instructors, Blueprint has helped thousands of students crush their LSAT goals. Learn more at BlueprintLSAT.com. From Law Hub, this is I Am The Law, a podcast where we talk with lawyers about their jobs to shed light on how they fit into the larger legal ecosystem. In this episode, Kyle McEntee interviews a criminal justice reform advocate who works at the intersection of law and policy. Support comes from Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark, New Jersey where you can enroll full-time or in the weekend JD program. In the heart of New Jersey, with proximity to New York City, Seton Hall is dedicated to your outcomes, evidenced by high employment and bar passage rates. Its one-student-at-a-time approach supports you throughout your time in law school. Their flexible, hybrid, weekend JD program allows working professionals to balance work, family, and law school. Learn more at law.shu.edu. We're joined today by Kimberly Baker Gilman, a 2005 graduate of the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. She does public policy and outreach for the mayor of Los Angeles. Kimberly, you've been in the public sector since 2005 and actually practiced law before jumping into the policy realm last year. What did you do before? Prior to law school, I was a teacher. I actually taught in South Los Angeles. Initially, I worked for a disability rights law firm At the time, it was called Protection and Advocacy Incorporated. It's now called Disability Rights California. And I represented youth from underserved communities who had behavioral health challenges in efforts to divert them from the criminal justice system. From there, I went to the attorney general's office and practiced in their civil group and then moved to the criminal appellate division from there. So before we get into what you do now, I want to talk a little bit about the mayor's office. Is the mayor the only elected official in this office? Yes, the mayor is the only elected official. However, he has five deputy mayors that oversee his different major policy areas. I am in the mayor's office of public safety under Deputy Mayor Jeff Gorell. And there are various policy shops in that particular office. So there's my office, there's the Game Reduction Youth Development Office, and Domestic Violence Policy Office, et cetera. But we all work to move the mayor's agenda. So you're in the Office of Reentry. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what the purpose is? The mayor's Office of Reentry focuses on removal of barriers faced by formerly incarcerated individuals. However, It's looking at the entire trajectory, the entire pipeline, and what gets a person to the point of reentry. So obviously that's looking at what gets them to the point of incarceration, what gets them to the point of uh, engaging in criminal behavior. So it's really looking at the whole person. And when you look at the whole person, you're looking at different pieces that impact that person. So for formerly incarcerated individuals, We know that there are some top drivers that really cause them to engage in criminal behavior. And we also know there are some areas that tend to be top obstacles for formerly incarcerated people. And those tend to be employment, housing, substance abuse, other behavioral health issues, family reunification, and mentorship slash pro-social relationships. So we focus on policy programs and systems reform in those areas. So it's not just reentering or transitioning from jail or freedom. 
It's also for those who have been free for a while, but still face residual consequences from their incarceration. Absolutely. And one thing that is somewhat of a challenge, but it allows us to be creative, is that the city of Los Angeles, we have technically no jurisdiction over people when they are incarcerated. In Los Angeles, there are two bodies that have jurisdiction over incarcerated people. One is the county. Second is the state. With regard to working with people when they are actually incarcerated, that's technically not in the city's jurisdiction. Our position with regard to currently incarcerated people is to push on policy and work to partner with county and state to support people currently incarcerated. But when people are actually released and returning to their communities, we have a lot of influence over what that is going to look like. We currently are focusing our energies and efforts on employment and then working with our home-based organizations to move the needle on housing, also on collateral consequences of conviction, like you noted, and with other issues with employment. Others, Proposition 47 here in Los Angeles that requires legal support. And then other areas, too, like restorative justice issues, trauma-informed care issues, et cetera. So that's a lot you're working on, but I actually understand that you are an office of one and that you opened the office. So how did that come about? I mean, it seems clear that your experience with the California AG's office really set you up nicely from understanding the legal landscape of it. So how did you transition from doing the legal side to trying to improve the city through all these sort of reforms? I think for me, every part of my career has been with an eye toward the bigger picture. When I made the decision to join the AG's office, I understood that in order to really effectively impact policy, I needed to have a good grasp of the legal landscape in the state. And also, I needed to understand the way things worked within a prosecutor's office in terms of discretion. And even from the consumer protection component of my work when I was at the attorney general's office, I was representing state licensing boards, but oftentimes individuals who were applying for licenses or who were licensees of the various professional boards were denied licenses or disciplined or were actually had their licenses removed or revoked because of convictions, which many times were not related and had no nexus to the duties or qualifications of the job. For me, it has always been with an eye toward understanding better the landscape in which these reforms need to occur. One thing that brought everything full circle for me, when I was in the attorney general's office, I remember when I was a teacher and my students were some of the most resilient and smart kids you would ever meet, but they face some of the most challenging obstacles that I had seen for little people to have to deal with. Seeing kids who were physically abused, who were being neglected, whose families, mothers were engaged in human trafficking, or the fathers were trafficking the mothers, substance abuse issues. But they came to school and wanted to be there. They wanted better for themselves. And so I just remember always fighting as a teacher for more for my students. 
And so once I realized that there was a larger, there were larger issues at play, I knew that I need to go to law school to change that. And so then when I fast forward to my career as a deputy attorney general, and I'm looking at my caseload as a criminal prosecutor, I'm looking at the probation reports of the defendants. Almost like clockwork, the defendants face some of the same obstacles, the same living situations, the same familial challenges that my students faced 15 years earlier. And so for me, it really made it very clear in that moment in time that this issue was about looking at the whole person and creating a landscape where they would truly have opportunity to be their best selves. And criminal justice issues and incarceration issues and crime are not just about the moment in time the crime is committed. As we all know, it's about so much more than that. And it's about generational cyclical issues. Support comes from Vermont Law and Graduate School. Vermont Law and Graduate School empowers students to dream big. It welcomes and shares passions for social justice, the environment, criminal justice reform, and so much more. At BLGS, realism and idealism collide. Together, students and faculty positively transform the world around them. From an accelerated two-year JD to an online hybrid JD, BLGS offers innovative programs where you can learn at your own pace. To learn more, please visit vermontlaw.edu. Support also comes from Albany Law School. Albany Law School is committed to increasing access to the legal profession. Albany Law's online FlexJD delivers all the benefits you'd expect from an institution that's been educating future lawyers and leaders since 1851. With one in-person session per year, you'll complete most of your work online, giving you the flexibility you need to earn your law degree when and where it works for you. To find out how you can begin your journey to earning a JD, Visit albanylaw.edu today. Support also comes from Baylor Law School, the smallest and oldest law school in Texas. Baylor Law has three entering classes, 15 tracks of study, strong bar passage and employment rates, robust scholarship offerings, numerous clinics and joint degree programs, and a focus on preparing excellent and ethical lawyers. Visit the Baylor Law website to learn more and to apply for free to the spring, summer, and or fall entering classes. So none of these issues are new in Los Angeles. Why do you think it took so long for a mayor to decide it was time to create this kind of office within the department? There are a couple issues at play. Mayor Garcetti is a person who is very committed to issues of social justice and economic opportunity. He comes from a background where his grandfather was an immigrant, having run-ins with the law. He has a very deep-seated understanding of what opportunity can do. Up until he established the Office of Reentry, prior to that, the only other Los Angeles mayor that really meaningfully addressed reentry was Mayor Tom Bradley, our first African-American mayor of Los Angeles. And he had a reentry coordinator, but he never actually established an Office of Reentry. If you couple Mayor Garcetti's background and understanding with some of the public goodwill and the landscape in which we live where there is more understanding that the issue of criminality is not just about the moment in time the crime is committed, coupled with the information that is starting to be widely understood that locking people up and forgetting about them does not work. 
It does not drive down crime. I think people are in a moment where they are more open to the reality that we are all in this together. And if we really want to see appreciable change in our communities, in our cities, in our state, in our nation, we have to think about things holistically and we have to look at a person as our neighbor, as our brother, as our compatriot and not as the enemy or the have not that we're not interested in engaging. So really, it's, it's a transition from viewing criminality as the individual's moral failing to looking at it as our collective moral failing and not setting people up to succeed and looking at all the factors that go into success. And that's where you come in and looking at the structural barriers that are precluding people from becoming a part of society again after they're jailed, but then also ensuring that they don't go to jail in the first place. The way you captured that was perfect. And I would just add that It's also about not punishing people into perpetuity. If we're all honest with ourselves, we've had missteps. And but for our parents or but for a connection, we could have been in a very bad position. Most of us aren't paying for the rest of our lives for our missteps. So that's part of it, too. Forgiving people and allowing them to really move forward and to really be allowed to, quote unquote, pay their proverbial debt to society and not be punished into perpetuity for their missteps. So let's talk about how you actually do this. It's part programming, it's part developing policy, and it's part outreach. Talk to me a little bit about the the programming. And in particular, I'm interested to hear about Proposition 47, which you mentioned earlier. Proposition 47 is a state law that was recently passed, which reclassifies certain low-level drug and property offenses from felonies to misdemeanors. However, there have been some challenges, and my office is working to work through those. So what are some of those challenges? The public defender's last count there was 1.3 million Los Angeles County residents eligible for Prop 47 reclassification. And to put that in context, that's out of 10 million people in the entire county. Yes. The individuals who are eligible for reclassification need to, number one, be aware that they're eligible. And number two, actually file the paperwork to allow them their, their felony to be reclassified. So they actually have to go through a filing process to have the felony reclassified as a misdemeanor. Yes, absolutely. Because it is not automatic and because people aren't even aware that they're eligible, there is an outreach effort being undertaken in the county of Los Angeles to get the word out about it. The public defender is leading the charge because there was a motion by the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors in December of 2015 charging the public defender with doing that. Also, as part of that motion, my office was charged along with the county counterpart to reach out to community stakeholders and formerly incarcerated individuals to discuss how best to access the projected cost savings to be realized from Prop 47 implementation. So I think it's worth pointing out here that Los Angeles and Los Angeles County are not coextensive. What is the overlap like in terms of working with the county when you are accountable to a different boss, essentially? You have the county of Los Angeles, 
and then the city of Los Angeles, which is within the county. And within the county, there are other cities. Compton, for example, is another city in the county of Los Angeles. However, we are all independent and make decisions independently of the county. The county oftentimes factors in things impacting the city of Los Angeles because we are its most populous city. When we look at the number of people that pass through Los Angeles County jails annually, which is roughly 163,000 people, we know that the majority of those people are returning to the city of Los Angeles. So the city of Los Angeles has a very significant stake in the conversation around reentry. And that's why we work very closely with one another to push different policies to support different laws and agreements that we are going to either separately or collectively try to move forward. So because of shared geographic space, you really do need to always be in contact and collaborating instead of butting heads. Absolutely. Take one step back here and explain to our listeners why it is that reclassification matters. Sometimes punishment extends beyond what we think of as the punishment. And it strikes me as that's what's going on here, but I just want to I want to hear a little bit more about how that works in practice. There are significant collateral consequences to conviction, one of which is employment opportunities are often taken off the table when someone is formally incarcerated, specifically when they have a felony conviction. There are certain private employers and certain public entities for a long, long time that would not consider individuals who had felonies. If a person had a felony on their record, it was an automatic no, an automatic denial. Now, we're currently in a time where many public entities have stopped with the policy of immediate denial with felonies. And the city of Los Angeles, I can proudly say, does not discriminate in that way. However, it still is very much an issue. There are still very many um, entities that if there is a felony on the record, they will not even consider the applicant. And then that then dovetails into another policy issue that our office is working very hard to move forward. So in November 2015, President Obama signed an executive order directing all federal agencies to remove the box from all of their job applications. And also in 2014, the state of California enacted AB 218, which made that same requirement of public agencies and entities within the state of California. We are currently, as a city, working on our own ban the box ordinance, which we are calling a fair chance ordinance. That ordinance will not only remain in line with AB 218, it will also require private employers and contractors with the city to remove the box from their applications inquiring as to criminal conviction history. And it will ask the employers to delay any inquiry into a person's criminal history until a conditional offer of hire has been extended. So I want to ask about some of the downsides to your job. But I can imagine one is that this is probably not going to make too many private employers too happy to have you tell them that they can't make hiring decisions as they want. What is that like to deal with? It's so funny that you'd ask because that is something that is really 
has really been at the forefront of a lot of my efforts in the past few months. And it's interesting because it goes to the issue of education. So you you really hit the nail on the head when you got down to the crux of the issue for the employers, which is they do not want anyone telling them who they can and cannot hire. For employers, that is at the core of their independence as a business owner. And the key to policy is, without a doubt, understanding your opponents and what makes them tick. Exactly. So a big part of what I've been doing in the ban the box push has been working with the private sector to educate them on why they're missing out on significant benefits for their companies by not engaging the formerly incarcerated workforce. There was actually a statistic recently released that said the United States lost over $57 billion in its GDP for one year by employers' unwillingness to hire formerly incarcerated individuals. We know that we have the odds stacked against us in terms of private employers' willingness to do that on their own. However, when we talk to them about the amount of money that they're missing out on, and when we talk to them about the type of worker with the type of often the work ethic and the type of desire that a formerly incarcerated employee will bring to the table, they start thinking about things that they just hadn't considered before. And so for a lot of them, it's really just about education and it's about shifting the paradigm. And one thing that we are working on right now is we're developing relationships with private employers in Los Angeles where we're talking to them. Because we want them to understand this is not about the government coming in and telling you how to run your business. This is about us figuring out the best way to have the best economic outcomes for our city. And the bottom line is we have an aging workforce. And in about 10 years, unless we fill those gaps in our workforce, we're going to have a crisis on our hands. There is no way that we're going to be able to do that unless we tap into our formerly incarcerated population, our quote-unquote opportunity youth population, because we don't have the bodies to do that otherwise. And so from a very basic economic perspective, it's absolutely necessary. And also from a moral perspective, it's the right thing to do. I Am The Law is a Law Hub production. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Blueprint LSAT Test Prep. Thank you also to our other sponsors, LSAT Lab, Seton Hall University School of Law, Vermont Law and Graduate School, and Baylor Law.